This is Peter Chihuahua from Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits podcast. Today's episode will focus on one of Bitcoin's most quintessential qualities, its open source development. But before we dive in, I want to invite you all to check out the Bitcoin 2020 conference. It's basically a big Bitcoin party in downtown San Francisco on March 27th and 28th. There will be a festival atmosphere, rooftop beer garden, art gallery, a lightning arcade, and other attendee experiences. Plus, there will be some pretty high-level technical talks from core developers and service providers. Even Nick Zabo will speak. So visit Bitcoin2020Conference.com to learn more and get your tickets. With that out of the way, I want to get back to Bitcoin Magazine's open source issue. I'm joined, as always, by Colin Harper here in the studio. How's it going, Colin? It's going pretty good, man. How you doing, Peter? I'm doing good. I wanted to ask what you thought of our issue uh, focus on Bitcoin's open source development. Yeah, I really thought that it built some momentum from last week because I think that these types of themes that really speak to some topics that people always will be chatting about on social media but may not get you know, their own airtime on news outlets, really kind of letting these topics have a field day and kind of approaching them from a bunch of different angles. I was really happy with it. I really like this intersection of the corporate world and open source tech because it's kind of, some would consider them almost, in some cases, anathema to each other and at least certainly juxtaposed to each other. So it's kind of cool to be able to hit on this topic because I think this one especially is something that doesn't really get appreciated or talked about as much. Yeah, and I think that's like what we were trying to get at with this whole issue. I think like maybe it's just taken for granted or assumed, okay, Bitcoin's open source, but it being such a big project, and we're going to dive into this a little bit more as we look at specific articles, but like it shouldn't be overlooked the fact that Bitcoin itself is open source and it's becoming such a momentum driver and such a big, you know, technical product out there that it's going to force anyone who wants to work with it to build on it to be open source as well. And like, I think we're going to see that be a huge part of Bitcoin's story, probably even bigger than we realize now. But to jump into it, I wanted to dive into the cover story, which you wrote, Colin. It's big and beautiful on the Bitcoin Magazine homepage right now. It's headlined, For Square Crypto, the way to Bitcoin mass adoption is open source. What's the story all about? Yeah, so... I've been wanting to write this for a while because we actually met up with Steve Lee at Bitcoin 2019. He was really energetic and kind Is he of the CEO? What's his official title? So for uh, Square Crypto specifically, which for our readers, quick distinction needs to be made. Square Crypto is a subsidiary of Square, but it's its own independent thing and it doesn't actually take any directives from Square Crypto or from Square Corporate. So... For Steve, I guess you could kind of say then, yes, he is kind of the CEO of Square Crypto. He's the project lead. And so he was in charge of wrangling this team that they got together, which includes Matt Corallo, uh, also a Lightning Labs developer, former Lightning Labs developer, uh, Valentin Wallace, a former Google software engineer, Jeffrey Ciziak. I really hope I pronounced that right. And Eric uh, Sozman, a former architect behind Facebook's Calibra wallet. So going back, the reason I wanted to do this piece is because I felt like Square Crypto hadn't really had its story told. It kind of just popped up one day and like Cash App was selling Bitcoin and then like Jack's like, oh, hey, Square Crypto is a thing now. (laughs) And then everyone's like, oh, what are you guys going to do? And uh, well, now we know what they're going to do. They announced their Lightning Development Kit, 
a few months ago, and this is going to be an open source an open source developers kit for anyone trying to build on Lightning. So it's kind of going to be a suite of like tools and technologies and things like that that they can use that'll hopefully make building on Lightning and building Lightning wallets a lot easier. Going back to what you were saying earlier about corporations kind of understanding that they are going to need to build open source technologies if they want to have a stake in Bitcoin's network. Right. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's what this is signaling too. And it's also awesome because, you know, I asked Steve, I was like, well, is Square going to use this? And he says, well, we hope Square uses it. And, you know, maybe if it's a good enough development kit, the engineers at Square will be like, okay, we're going to use this so that we can onboard Lightning and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if Square uses it because it's not for Square, it's for everyone. Right. But I bet Square will end up finding a way to use it. I think so. <laughs> I think probably. I mean, you know, assuming it's a good product, which I imagine it will be, you'd have to believe Square Corporate's like, all right, yeah, like we invested money into this. Even if we didn't tell them what to do, we put money into this. Hopefully we can get something out of it. Yeah, and I think you did a great job kind of telling Square's story with that lens. I'd encourage anyone who you know wants to dive into it, the best way to digest this would to be go ahead and read that cover story. I'll just pull out one thing that, you know, when I read it, I'd like to highlight. Something that caught my attention the most was Steve's emphasis on building non-custodial solutions. What I found surprising, interesting about that, I was like, you know, that is a real good guy move. That sounds like mm -hmm. exactly what we like to hear and very not corporate focused and like seems altruistic. I'm a little worried to use that word because I'm sure there's, you know, some sort of benefit that they'd get. But, you know, what did you think kind of hearing that answer from Steve? Hearing that answer, I heard like a pretty, I don't know, I thought that was a pretty trenchant observation, this idea that as Bitcoin continues to grow, unless there is significant time and, and resources committed to development of non-custodial solutions, non-custodial solutions will take up a very insignificant share of the market. Because I think what Steve realizes and what he expressed to me that non-custodial business models are not business models, kind of in the same way that like open source business models right. are not business models, right? You're not going to get fundraising for that, so you're not going to have the war chest to be able to fund development. So the custodial solutions are always going to have equity on their side, right? whereas the non-custodial solutions won't. Yeah, and then to be clear, I did not feel like Steve was saying like custodial solutions bad, non-custodial good, which is kind of where I would stand out. I think, as you say, he was emphasizing more like, we don't really need to worry about promoting custodial solutions. Those are going to find their own avenues exactly. for growth. We feel like where we can serve more value is the non-custodial. Yeah, exactly. And I think that he's, again, I think that's a good distinction. He's not necessarily saying custodial is bad and non-custodial is good. But I think what he is saying is that not letting the market develop to a place or organically develop to a point where the consumer has, you know, options for both that are both equally attractive, right? So right. I think from a free market point of view, if you had a dearth of non-custodial solutions, they're probably going to be garbage compared to the surplus of custodial solutions, which might have a lot of great, you know, features and services and things like that. And, and, and the consumers are just going to naturally gravitate towards those, especially because the UX and the UI is a lot easier. And I think second point on this it's especially telling considering what they're working on because I am a firm believer in the fact that I think that once lightning takes off, unless 
something drastically changes, I think the vast majority of wallets and services are going to be custodial. I think the average user is never going to run their own node. And even running a lightweight client like Neutrino is still too difficult and is still kind of a little more of a headache than they would like to have, right? But the wallet of Satoshi is, is, is beautiful, has a beautiful UX, is super clean, super slick, very fluid. Yeah. And so I think since they're working on the Lightning development kit, I think that's very telling because like this is signaling to me they're not just focused on Lightning and they're not just focused on non-custodial solutions. They're focused on non-custodial solutions for Lightning. And I think they that's want developers right. to be able to build uh, better solutions with their kit than they can currently. Yeah, and they do. I mean, that's a pretty specific focus. Um, mm-hmm. So that's cool. And I think that brings me to the next, next question I wanted to ask. Uh, I wanted to ask about your conversation with Daniel Buckner from ION. They have a pretty specific use case that they're after too. But because Microsoft's kind of like open source commitment to Bitcoin is also serving a sort of business purpose, it's not completely altruistic. But at the same time, like with the Square Crypto article, I felt like I came away feeling like I see their motivation. I see how it helps everybody. And if anything, that makes me feel better. Like there's no kind of like nefarious purpose. But anyway, what I'm asking is, can you kind of describe you know, what's Microsoft's motivation for powering ION and building this potential open source solution on Bitcoin? Right. So here I think that it's almost even a, like you were talking about like the difference between altruism and like, you know, actually having a, for lack of a better phrase, a business model for these yeah, things. Right. With, with Microsoft, it's even clearer that like, while this is a benefit to the ecosystem, like there's obviously a clear business benefit for Microsoft. And for those of you who don't know, ION is Microsoft's digital decentralized digital ID protocol. And what this is going to look like is it's going to be a second layer network. Um, you know, you can think the point is not payments. The point is identification. And Daniel Buckner and his team building ION at Microsoft, they basically came to Microsoft and they said, okay, here's Bitcoin. You know that it's supposed to be for payment. Or you've heard that it's supposed to be for payments and maybe you've heard about the digital gold thing. But the things that they sold Microsoft on is they said it's really expensive to attack. So the security is extremely robust. And you can keep a chronological order of any timestamp of, of, of any information that you put on the blockchain. You can, you can keep a flawless chronology and immutable chronology of events. And this, is, this lends itself perfectly. Both of those things lend themselves perfectly for establishing a digital identity system. And one of the things that Daniel Buckner told me is that if, if this system works as they have it blueprinted right now, if it works and is architected the way that they foresee it, any person will be able to store identification documents for thousands of, you know, thousands of different instances. He said 2,000 operations, which basically just mean you proving who you are through this digital ID system. It would cost like two bucks. Right. So for Microsoft, they end up not only helping build on Bitcoin and create a decentralized ID scenario, which to this day has not really been fully ironed out, especially on Bitcoin. It would be huge because they would save a bunch of money. Right now they use Azure for a bunch of stuff like that, their cloud platform for keeping track of IDs and accounts across all these, these variety of different platforms. Right. If they do this, then they cut the cost by millions, uh, or at least so Daniel says. Yeah, so, so this made me think, so is this something we don't... Ha- I think what was really cool about us covering this in several articles across our issue for this week is like, is this something the community doesn't harp on enough? Am I, am I not doing my job enough trumpeting like, hey, huge corporations, like you should just build on top of Bitcoin because it's like the most secure blockchain, immutable ledger that exists. 
you're going to waste a ton of money trying to replicate or create your own like proprietary mm. Bitcoin. I see what so you're just saying. Use it. I mean, yeah. it makes sense for you. It makes sense for us. Like, you know, I mean, I think that like some of us do harp on this. In fact, a lot of us have saying, you know, this is the mantra of like, why do Bitcoiners, why are they so toxic about shit coins? And yeah, blockchain? I guess this does come up when so and so is releasing a quote-unquote enterprise enterprise blockchain yeah yeah because it cool it does come up but like to your point like i I feel like maybe we're out of gas at this point because we've just shouted so much about it you (laughs) know because it's just like take it or don't yeah yeah, exactly because but i think what daniel is saying here is what all of us think when we say that if you want the blockchain's assurances you you literally just have to go to like you don't need anything else but bitcoin right and especially once we start getting second layer technologies that are anchored to the main chain and start cutting back on some of those transaction costs that might hamper using it, there's going to be no reason not to. And I think that Microsoft building on Bitcoin here is such a huge signal as, as one of the, you know, a legacy computer company saying, hey, guys, this, this, right. this technology is real and it's not just about payments. We can do these things with it, too. Yeah. And, you know, it's not going to no, know like... I don't know. I'm not going to f- try to forecast. They're not going to have some of these crazy smart contract, you know, like use cases that some people were saying, or at least if we're going to have those, it's not going to be right now. But simple things like identity, right? you know, that, I mean, that's, that, that's baked into Bitcoin's code. Yeah. I mean, I would guess we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to have to let some of the enterprise blockchains, may, there are probably some use cases where it makes sense. I think we're going to have to let a few of them fail. And then have these the private companies realize like at least for some solutions they're wanting to build, it saves them money, time, right. and makes the actual usable product. If you just suck it up, except yeah. that you cannot like contain and and protect all the work you're gonna put in, and like you have to just open source this to a certain degree. Yeah, for sure. And I think that you know, like you said, like enterprise blockchain, I think there will be like, it's going to revolutionize how we do back office things. I mean, like right. accounting is going to be easier. Um, a lot of things like that are going to be easier. Certain internal payments will be easier, but that's not the interesting part. And you couldn't do what they're trying to do on an enterprise blockchain because then it's just a database. Then it's just Azure, right? right. Or then it's just uh, Amazon Web Services or Google's cloud. Because I mean, if you think about it right now, think about recently, if you've been paying attention Google Suite is everywhere now. You can use Google Suite to log into everything. Yeah. Which is simultaneous. I love it. It's bad OPSEC and it's it's you know like it's not <laughs> cypherpunk, right. but like it's, it's it's super convenient and it's really easy. Now imagine you get to do that with your pub key. And like right. that's what we're working towards. And yeah. like eventually you're gonna be able to do that. And then eventually, once you're able to like hammer out this this digital ID system then just internet security in general, things become more secure. You don't have to manage all these different passwords. And then, you know, eventually in real life, you, you won't even have to carry around your, your driver's license anymore. But that's like way down the road. I'm yeah. kind of like digressing. Right. Well, I mean, but said with extreme and obvious bias, yeah, that's so much cooler than Walmart tracking food supply yeah. on their private blockchain, which right. kind of exists anyway. So, Which is a use case, but like you said, much cooler. Yeah. Um, so I'll move on here. Just lastly, to talk about the infograph that we published. So this has traced the organizations that have funded Bitcoin's most prominent open source developers, either through like single grants or continued employment, but essentially like who's funding the open source development that's most prominent on Bitcoin. 
Uh, so looking at that data, Colin, what kind of stood out from you as like the lesson you learned, you know, looking through that? Big shout out to our design chick, Nikki. She's a rock star. All of our coolest designs are usually her or Pat, but Pat usually sticks on conference stuff. Right. Or sorry, not Pat, Um, uh, Tommy and Pat. But anyway, big shout out to Nikki. Really appreciate her work. I think one of the things that I really took away from this is in the early days, I had kind of approached this graphic expecting to see efforts like maybe, you know, Square Crypto's efforts or like the Bitcoin Foundation or, you know, just like random funds and grants that were funding open source developers. What I actually found in a lot of cases is you had guys like Eric Lombrazo founding firms like CypherX, which basically just was him creating like basically his own consulting firm so he could just do Bitcoin full time. (laughs) And you found like a lot of instances of, uh, I think um, Chain Code Labs is another one that was like this. The Bitcoin Foundation is kind of the same thing where it's like in most cases, especially early on, it was Bitcoiners creating organizations and then soliciting funding and basically saying, hey, like this thing is really, this this is big. You may not think it's big. We think it's big. I know this is in our own self-interest because we like this thing, but we really want to work on this, but no one will fund us. Yeah. And just finding people who would listen, that was really big. And it wasn't until later, I think, that you started to see some of the, the, the contributions from the corporations like Square or like the grant programs, right? Where they started kind of giving money out on a kind of independent developer basis. That was probably one of my biggest takeaways is just how much of the uh, of of the people that we think of as like Eric Lombrazo or like Matt Corallo or in the, back in the early days, Gavin Andreessen, and now still um, Vladimir Vanderland. A lot of these dudes, you're some of the earliest Bitcoin core maintainers and like who really put time into this software. Their initial funding was all them just like going after it and saying like, I, like, I want to work on this. I need funding. Yeah, uh, for me, the takeaway is probably I mean, there's like only a handful of organizations powering the vast majority of GitHub commits, essentially, on Bitcoin. Mm. I'm sure it will grow. I think it was, on some level, depending on what kind of buys you might have brought in looking at this infograph for the first time, you might say, okay, like, it's really not just Blockstream, for instance. There's actually a handful of, of organizations funding this stuff. But when I take even a step Further back than that, I'm like, this is just a handful of groups that essentially power like what's supposed to be the world's greatest decentralized technology. Yeah. Not not saying I have concerns that that's corruptible or anything. I think it's just because it's so new. But, you know, it's really like this is just a handful of basically all guys. Yeah. Funded from basically like half a dozen organizations and they're creating like this technology we all believe in so much. So I hope if we revisited it in a few years or something like that, what we'd see is just way more names worth including. I think you'd see more. Um, One of the things that I actually, to to kind of spin this and to play devil's advocate, I kind of found it a positive outlook when I was doing this research because when I was going through GitHub to see how many commits each of these developers had, there were a lot of independent developers who had more commits than them that didn't make the list because they actually didn't get funding. Right. And I had to go to the bottom of the list to get some of these guys. Yeah. 
So for me, there were actually more active developers than I thought. A lot who used to develop and had some of these grants but don't anymore. And a lot of them too. Another thing that was kind of um, emboldened me or just really was kind of made me feel optimistic was a lot of the dudes who were getting grants just started committing like a year ago. And so you're starting to see new talent come in. And I think that to your point though, we do want to see more. And I think you will start seeing more because the way I kind of look at Bitcoin is it's like a puzzle that, that only really a small percentile of people really understand and can solve completely right. or even build on, right? And that's probably the crux of it being, for lack, uh, I hate, I'm probably using the wrong word, but centralized in a sense, yeah. just the amount of people that can influence it technically. Right. And, and to kind of to take a historical example that I actually is quite fresh memory because I just watched The Imitation Game last night. Have you seen The Imitation Game with... Is this the... It's Alan Turing. It's yeah, the yes, one he's... Yeah, Great movie. Fantastic movie. Great but performance by Mr. Benedict Cumberbatch. Always a good performance yes. from, from Benedict Bumbersnatch. <laughs> um, but uh, when I was watching that movie, uh, you know, at that time, you know, they go through... So for anyone who hasn't seen The Imitation Game, and I'll keep this short, Alan Turing is working on a... Basically what ends up being a computer to break Enigma, which was the Germans' uh, encryption uh, uh, machine that they used uh, for decrypting encrypted messages during World War II. To pool talent to try to create this machine, Turing puts out a crossword in the the Times newspaper, and it says, if you can solve this crossword in 10 minutes, give this number a call for an exciting opportunity. He ends up getting two people to work on him with it through that program. And what those people basically did in trying to crack Enigma is they created the first computer is basically what they did. They, they created a Turing-complete machine, which would eventually inspire the work that would create the first computers that would now power and operating systems that now power what we use today. Only a select handful of people actually had the knowledge to actually create the mechanisms to birth this entire revolution in information. I see Bitcoin as kind of something similar. Like As much as I would love to get on core and be like, I'm going to learn how to do an opportunity. I'm going to do maintain and do some BIPs. These and- blocks are just not big enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like As much as I would love to do that, it's not for everyone. Everyone has their own place. So for the people working on Bitcoin right now, there's such a rare breed of people who can actually understand this stuff enough and be able to develop it. And it's also another thing that comforts me is the fact that I know that these dudes are way smarter in terms of knowing what they're doing than the people who would try to influence them. Yeah, and there's a good system set up. I exactly. Mean, yeah. Um, so not, not trying to just like totally uh, take the aggressive front and argue against your takeaway, <laughs> but I think that I do agree looking at this, especially, so, so actually a point that I will agree, if you look at the early stages, like Gavin and uh, Vladimir Vanderland and... I can't remember the last dude's name, but like three dudes basically migrated from the Bitcoin Foundation to the MIT DCI initiative right. because they were maintaining Bitcoin Core at the time and were the most prolific coders, right? And so with that, it's like, yeah, like there's like three dudes who are doing the majority of stuff for Bitcoin at the time. Yeah. And then you get Blockstream in the equation. But I mean, that's not even that far removed from Satoshi being one or maybe several, like a single entity. Right. So, you know, right. it's just because it starts with a handful of people who believe in the technology. And, 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 that, yeah. and it'll keep growing. And I think that last thing I'll say, much like the Internet's growth itself, once you start introducing this to people who fit the mold, like, for instance, in the movie, Alan Turing had encryption introduced to him by his friend Christopher. And imagine when you introduce Bitcoin to someone 
It's just obviously, it's you know, it's just going to fit. It's like they're just yeah. going to get it and they're going to want to work on it. Then you're just going to start feeling the field of developers multiply infinitely. Well, not infinitely, but exponentially, right? Yeah, I, I think that's good perspective to bring into the infograph for sure. I'm going to leave it there. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this episode. You can find Colin on Twitter at As I Lay Hodling. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Chihuahua. And as always, you can read the articles we discussed today at BitcoinMagazine.com. That does it for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review so we can improve the show. The Bitcoin Magazine Weekly Bits podcast is a BTC Media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. It was produced by Graham Peterson and Dave Hollerith. You can find more engaging podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com and you can follow them on Twitter at the LTB Network for all the latest episodes. Thanks again for tuning in.